This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. I'm joined on today's podcast by Dr. Audrienne Samet, who is one of the neonatal intensive care consultants at both Great Ormond Street Hospital and UCLH. She's going to be talking to me about the neurodevelopmental follow-up of infants who've been admitted to the NICU, a topic that will cover points in both the neonatology and neurodevelopment sections of the MRC-PCH curriculum. Thank you for joining me, Audrey-Anne. What is it that you would like people to get out of this podcast? I would like them to recognise which group of babies are classified as being high-risk infants, and this should be a part of a robust neurodevelopment and follow-up programme, which would then allow them access to early intervention and improved outcomes. Right, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So really key to understand kind of who should actually benefit from this programme. So how common is it for neonates who have had a NICU admission to experience neurodevelopmental issues or developmental delay? Is it a common problem? Yes, unfortunately, babies have been unwell and received treatment for a variety of conditions on the neonatal unit, commonly continue to be affected even in the long term with health or developmental problems. And whilst we are getting better in improving survival rates for babies born preterm and also have underlying neurological problems, morbidity remains high. Okay, and actually I imagine that as survival is improving, there's probably more babies now that are left with potentially kind of longer term problems than there were previously when we weren't so good at managing these babies. Yes, exactly. So with improvements in things like surfactant therapy, antenatal steroids, we've seen an increased number of extra preterm babies who wouldn't make it out of neonatal unit actually be discharged home. Yeah, fantastic. Well, yeah, that's that's great news in itself that they're surviving. But yeah, important that we need to know to follow them up. Are there any particular risk factors amongst these babies? So amongst all babies that are admitted to the NICU, are there any additional risk factors that would put them at even higher risk? Yeah, so babies who we put into the high-risk category include all preterm babies who are born with less than 30 weeks gestation, especially those who develop an interventricular hemorrhage of any grade, but especially the grade three or four, or what we also know as hemorrhagic parenchymal infarcts. Those who develop cystic periventricular leukocomalacia or have neonatal sepsis, and also go on to develop bronchopulmonary dysplasia, for which mechanical ventilation was still needed at 36 weeks postmenstrual age. We know that preterm babies whose mothers haven't received antenatal steroids also fall into this group. And also those who have then received postnatal steroids, maybe to enable them to get off the ventilator. Babies who are born with a low birth weight of less than 1.5 kilos also fall into the high risk category. And then there's term babies who are unwell in the neonatal period and receive intensive care for conditions like stroke, meningitis, encephalitis, seizures or moderate or severe neonatal encephalopathy, including the hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, bilirubin encephalopathy, or even metabolic conditions. And then there are term babies with a known underlying genetic disorder, which is associated with abnormal development because of the underlying condition mostly. Are there any protective factors? So things that you can do in the NICU that might 
help mitigate against the risks? So we know, for example, on the UCNH neonatal unit, we have what we call an IVH prevention bundle. So there are a couple of things that we do to try and prevent babies falling into this prior category and getting things like IVHs that would further impact the neurodevelopmental outcomes. So these include, as I've mentioned before, antenatal steroids, magnesium sulfate, antenatally as well, given to mothers who are in preterm labor. And then as well, once the baby is born, making sure that they are handled as, as least as we can. So keeping them in a stable environment, especially for the first 72 hours of life when they're more prone to developing these intraventricular hemorrhages. And then obviously keeping a close eye on them. So making sure that they are monitored closely in terms of their blood pressure and other parameters that we have available to ensure that they are kept stable in these first few days of life. Right. Okay. And then I guess moving on a little bit down the line, how do subsequent neurodevelopmental sequelae typically present? Yes, so what we call neurodevelopmental problems is actually an umbrella. So the children can have cognitive and or behavioral impairments or speech and language delays, and they can have sensory and neural deficits and also motor deficits such as cerebral palsy. So actually any of the neurodevelopmental domains may be affected. Yes. And is there a typical age in which these issues typically manifest? So they can manifest as early as the neonatal period. So we see it even on the neonatal unit. So you might notice maybe that the baby is moving in a different pattern than what we expect, or even has an abnormal tone when we examine them. And this is why that it is important that we have developmentally supportive care interventions on the neonatal unit. So chance we have the newborn individualized developmental care assessment program or a family integrated care program that makes sure that we look after these aspects as well for when our babies are in the neonatal unit. But some the neurodevelopmental issues become more prominent as the children grow older and reach preschool age, especially problems with executive function and behavioral problems become a bit more obvious as the children are growing. Right. Okay. So there's no one typical presentation. It could be kind of any of the domains of neurodevelopment and it could happen any time from almost immediately in that neonatal period to, to much later on down the line. Yes, and it can be either very obvious or very subtle and it's just a, a spectrum of presentations. Okay, with that in mind, how are these infants and then I guess children as they grow up to be followed up after discharge from NICU with regards to the kind of neurodevelopmental perspective? So neurodevelopmental follow-up is all about following children at set ages and intervals, so making sure that we monitor them as a trajectory as they are growing older. So even NICE recommends that all children who qualify for enhanced developmental surveillance support should have at least two face-to-face follow-up visits in the first year that focus on development between three and five months and, and by 12 months, a detailed face-to-face developmental assessment at two years, corrected age or preterms, and that preterm infants born at less than 28 weeks gestation actually have face-to-face detailed developmental assessment at four years chronological age. And this is why it is important that children attend all of these appointments so we can actually identify any regression or delay in achieving milestones early. Yeah, that sounds really important. And I mean, who qualifies, as it were, for this enhanced developmental surveillance? Is it all babies who've been in NICU or only those that are in the high-risk group that we talked about earlier? So it's the ones that we mentioned earlier as belonging to the high-risk group that would meet the criteria for enhanced developmental surveillance, but practice does vary between different hospitals. Okay. And then 
at the actual follow-up appointments, how do you assess these children? Presumably it's important to do quite a comprehensive assessment that looks at all the different domains. And are there any particular assessment tools that are particularly helpful in identifying any emerging issues? So it's important that at the clinic visit, you take a holistic approach to following up the, the child as well. So first of all, we look at things like growth monitoring and making sure that the, the child is actually growing using the appropriate centiles on the growth charts. And then we address any parental concerns regarding the child's health or any developmental milestones that maybe they have noticed that their child hasn't reached. And then we also perform a systemic examination and just to make sure that there's nothing else that we have identified as a health problem that might impact as well development or be joined up with a developmental problem as well that might go hand in hand. And we ask for especially things like hearing and vision, but also we do a developmental assessment looking at their gross motor, fine motor, language and social skills. We provide early intervention, so developmental support and advice to these families. Not just that we notice a problem, but even just so that we can help families, help their child grow if you wish. So give them some tips on how to do that. And we ensure that timely referrals are made as per the local pathway. So especially if there are any developmental concerns, we need to make sure that these children are referred early to their community team. Many units use the general movements assessment, also known as the practical general movements at three months of age. And this is emerging as a very strong predictor of motor outcomes on the association with cerebral palsy. But there are other several formal developmental assessment tools which can be used. And just to mention a few, there's the Griffith scales of child development, the Bailey scales of infant and toddler development, and the WIPSI, the Wester Preschool and Primary Scale of Intelligence. And at two years of age, as I've mentioned previously, NICE says that it's mandatory to perform a formal neurodevelopmental assessment because outcomes are actually nationally audited across the UK. And they recommend that even we follow up the preterm children up to the age of four years and use questionnaires such as the PARCA-R or the GMSS system if children have been diagnosed with cerebral palsy, that's the gross motor function classification system. And it's all in line with national recommendation. Okay. And then if you do identify potential issues with development, what can be done to support these children and families? So you mentioned that there are various early interventions or kind of local support pathways, but what treatments or therapies have actually been shown to be useful in this population? So the aim of neurodevelopmental intervention is to achieve the closest to expected functioning possible for every child. So even if they have had a brain injury, we want them to achieve their, their best possible outcome following that brain injury. So there are early intervention programs that are provided by a multi-professional team that are vital for this. And the aim is to support the child with their sensory motor development, their attention, their self-regulation and their early communication skills. So if we do identify that the child has a, a problem early on in clinic, we refer to the child development center that there is by locality according to where the family lives. And this process can even start from before the baby is discharged from the neonatal unit or when we do see them in clinic. And the child development center ensures that the family has access to community pediatricians, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, psychologists, and speech and language therapists who can support them with this process. And as the child approaches preschool age, we will also involve an educational psychologist and a school teacher as that they might have special education needs. 
And throughout this whole process, the parents or carers of the child play a vital role because they are the ones who will be doing the most interventions and who need to make sure that the follow-up appointments are maintained. Right, okay. So it really is a you know multidisciplinary approach to managing these children to give them the best outcome. Yes. What is the prognosis for these children? So there's been quite a few research done on early intervention and the recent meta-analysis has shown that there is improvement in cognitive outcomes up to preschool age and in early motor outcomes in infants born preterm. However, the effect of early intervention on motor outcomes was small and furthermore, fewer than half of the study provided information on motor outcomes at preschool and school age. So there is evidence that it works, but it's still quite limited, but it's better than obviously not doing anything. Yeah, completely. You'd want to do everything you can, I guess, to to give these babies and children the best chance of, you know, the best possible functioning for them. Yes. So how long does your follow-up continue? So we discharge children when they reach the age of two years. However, it is highly recommended that these children are continued to be followed up until preschool age. Especially those who are born before 28 weeks gestation, they should have a face-to-face developmental assessment at four years chronological age. Whether this is provided by the neonatologist who does a follow-up clinics or whether it's in the community, but they should be reviewed at least at that time, just before they reach preschool age. And it should, as a minimum, include strengths and difficulties questionnaires as part of their follow-up, and it should be a parental questionnaire as well as the ages and stages questionnaire, and that checks for various aspects of their development, along with a standardized test to assess IQ, such as the WIPSI, um, Wrestler Preschool and Primary Scans of Intelligence, and the GMFCS if cerebral palsy has been diagnosed. So finally, a comprehensive summary of the child's strengths and difficulties, including any developmental problems and disorders should be provided to the parents along with plans for interventions and educational support where needed as it is vital to continue this work, obviously, even if the child does go to school. Okay, so these children are usually discharged at the age of two, but then seen again at preschool age. And what are the chances of new issues being detected at the later follow-up time? If you have a child that would appear to be testing normally at the age of two, Can you reassure parents that they're unlikely to develop any further issues subsequently? Unfortunately, it is highly likely that issues can develop later on at preschool age. So when when they're four years old, so yes, as you've mentioned, we see these children, we discharge them at the age of two. And then unfortunately, there is a big gap between being two and being four where these children aren't followed up. And we do see that quite a few of them do have problems especially when it comes to executive functions, you know, things like maths, especially in preterms and just their spatial awareness and even their interaction with other children that might be suffering. So in terms of obviously reassuring them that their child won't have any motor problems, yes, because otherwise that would have been very obvious by the age of two, but higher brain functioning is very difficult to detect. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Moving on now to our standard quick fire questions that we ask to everybody on the podcast. Are there any classic exam questions that pop up about this subject? So I know that the RCPCH Progress General Pediatrics Syllabus Level 1 highlights the importance of knowing how to monitor the patterns of normal development, including motor, adaptive, language and social components from birth to adulthood, emotional and social development. And it also emphasizes the importance of recognizing and initiating investigations of developmental delay, disordered development, learning difficulties and disability. 
So I would recommend familiarizing yourselves with the normal developmental milestones because this is a very common exam question. Yeah, and I guess really important to know because that's how you pick up when a child might need more support if you know what those the kind of milestones, milestones are. are. Yeah. And actually for listeners, we've got a podcast with Dr. Keir Shields, one of the general paediatricians that talks a bit more about how to learn all those developmental milestones. In addition to the podcast, are there any useful resources that you would recommend about this topic? Yes, I've mentioned quite a few times the NICE guidelines NG72 on developmental follow-up of children and young people born preterm, and these are available online as per other NICE guidelines. And I also am a member of the British Association for Neonates and Neurodevelopmental Follow-up called BANFU, and anyone interested can join this group via the British Association of Perinatal Medicine via BATM on their website and they organize webinars and you can also become involved in the various work streams if you're interested in neonatal neurodevelopment. And there's another website called EI Smart, which highlights key strategies for early intervention. It's useful to signpost the parents, but has other resources as well for healthcare professionals. And there's posters and leaflets that can be printed as well, which are very useful. Okay, great. And for our listeners, we'll post the links to these websites in the description of the episode. So you should be able to find them there and click on them to go to these websites. Finally, what are your three takeaway learning points from the podcast today? So I would say that first of all, early intervention is key. So starting from the neonatal units with simple things like positioning and handling and moving on to regular outpatient reviews where problems can be identified early and signposted to the right professionals. And the secondly is that parents always play a vital role. So it is important to engage them early, starting with family integrated care and the neonatal unit and ensuring that they're given enough information to aid their child's development by providing basic useful tips that they can put into practice at home. And finally, that every child is different. So when you do see a patient in clinic, you need to provide holistic care that is tailored to each one of them individually for them to be able to reach their full potential despite their limitation. And this also depends on the family's needs and social situation. Thank you. Three really excellent learning points, I think. And overall, just a really excellent summary of the the issue. So a small area of neurodevelopment, but one that I think is really important, particularly for giving these babies the best outcome. So thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.